Okay, so my guest today is Karen Rose from the Perth Symphonic Chorus. Thank you so much for coming in today. Oh, look, my absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Sheila. So you've got a relative who, I say technically served in World War One. We're not actually sure if he, we can really count that as saying served. Well, I suppose it's a case of how does one define service? Yeah. <laughs> Did this add to the morale mm-hmm. of the, the, the young boys? Let's be honest, so many of them were young boys. Yes. They were country boys. You know, did it help feed that bravado and that um, sense of adventure? You know, for me, yes, my grandfather epitomises the sense of adventure and excitement. Dare we describe such a thing as exciting? Mm. Now, he's, you say young boys, and he was the youngest boy that probably ever went. <laughs> well, look, according to the research I've done, the youngest serving mm-hmm. person was around 12. Yep. You know, grandfather was born in 04. You know, he'd have to have been about 10. About 10. When this adventure started and occurred. <laughs> and, you know, the, the smile, I mean, the twinkle in his eye in one of those photographs... You know, there was no fear in him at all. No, he looks like a very cheeky little boy. <laughs> he really does. And he's fitted out. He is completely fitted out. It in looks a like a proper, proper uniform. Somebody made him a uniform. So he was 10 years old and he was smuggled aboard a ship with a bunch of other soldiers. Indeed. And he ended up in Cairo. <laughs> you know, it's how else and the story says that yes he was fitted inside a kit bag mm-hmm. and my mother said to me that he was a very short man his brother was a jockey so that puts him into that you know for guys short yep and yeah there he is standing in front of a man on the boat big smile on his face do we know who that man is family stories say that he was the chaplain mm-hmm. now for me in the overall scheme of things to find somebody that would have had to have taken um had the responsibility mm-hmm. of caring for him. You know, it fits the idea of a chaplain. Yep. Where they're not actually going into active um, service as such. Mm-hmm. They are there providing a service to support the men. Yes. So, you know, part of that is, can you please just look after our little mascot? <laughs> Do we have any idea about how he managed to stow away? Or? Absolutely none. <laughs> and for me and for the family, it just adds to that mystique. You know, if we didn't have the photographs, we wouldn't believe that it would have happened. Yeah, I mean, who would believe a a child that young just jumps aboard a ship in a fully decked out Australian army uniform? Yeah, indeed. (laughs) And you can see by that photograph there, Mm. you know, he's next to the horse. You've got your guns there. You've got your slouch hat there. He's got the snare drum on him. You know, he's he's just so fitting in. And we've got the, the proof from a newspaper article that he was actually in Egypt, in Cairo. Correct, yes. You know, and it's titled Colonel Anzac. You know, and was that what got him to come back home? We have no idea as to how long he was over there mm-hmm. and as to, um, you know, what the trip home was like because did they smuggle him back board to come home? Don't know. <laughs> how did he get from Egypt back home? You know, did he go via other places? Mm-hmm. I'd like to think he didn't see any type of combat whatsoever. <laughs> Someone that young, you'd hope not. No, but just, yeah. And the fact that his mother was believed to have known about this. That's, that, it's insane. Just. <laughs> she ticked the box, signed it, went, yes, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, just, you know. And his father, as I explained to you, his father signed up in 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if his father had gone with him and he'd been the one smuggling him on board, that would put a bit more sense around the story. But he didn't. You know, his father and mother stayed home. Did they wave him goodbye? Who knows? But what an exciting story. (laughs) It's incredibly exciting. And he basically became a bit of bit of a face didn't he indeed um they used the one of the photographs as a roll up your wanted push you know to to encourage more was it his youthfulness that would encourage and entice the young ones mm. we hear stories of people upping their age yes yes we do to be able to get out there um you know australia at that time we we ran on the back of those in the country you know, we were country. Yep, big time. And it's there was a community spirit. Everybody was out there for everybody else. It was a big deal to be an Australian. Mm. So to see a young lad say, wow, you know, he can do it. Let's get out there. Sadly, you know, how much of our population did we lose? Yes, an entire generation, really. Uh, but, you know, grandfather, he looked like, seriously, he thought it was an adventure of a lifetime. Yeah, he, he does look like a, a young chap out in the backyard playing war. Mm. He, he looks like he's having the time of his life. And very seriously, too, in this uh, the Colonel Anzac uh, article about him in Cairo, he's got his, he's got his uh, little posture there, and it's just... He's obviously he, been emulating them. Yes, really, really observing. Um, he was an incredibly big-hearted man. Mm-hmm. He would give his coat off his back and give it to someone else in need, and he would go cold. That's the type of spirit that he came in with. Mm. And it was a beautiful spirit. And there's a gentleness. When you look at his eyes in the photographs, Mm. there's a gentleness about him. But there's a sense of just knowing that he's out there, he's doing his bit. Yeah, if he's doing it, you can too. Yes, yes. Yeah, they are adorable photos. He's a very, very cute little, little lad there. Do we know which battalion he managed to sneak off with no we don't we seriously i've been able to glean absolutely nothing to Fair this enough. point <laughs> and i would like to think that one day i'll be able to put more of the story around him mm-hmm. it would be really really nice it would be a fascinating story because uh you mentioned to me before we started recording that your mum never met him no sadly she didn't and he was about 37 uh, when he was killed in a mining accident in in kalgoorlie mm. Yes, it, it is very sad, and it always intrigued my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, she was very sad that she didn't get to meet him. But my mother was a, a phenomenal storyteller, mm. and my sister is a phenomenal writer of stories, and they just have the gift. And she would have loved to have spent time with her father to put together the story, because according to my mother, grandfather wasn't terribly literate. Yep. He really struggled to read and write. Mm-hmm. So for mum to have been able to have done that for him. To take that story down. Um, because of the uniqueness and the um, excitement of such a, such a story. This is the kind of story that they make movies out of. It is. And it's also, for me, it conveys and portrays that energy that was known and associated with the Anzacs. Mm. Let's be honest, this is just prior to um, the actual storming of Gallipoli. Yes. So it, it's, it's just that... We can do this. Nothing's going to stop us. Yeah, it's it's that belief innocence, in that self. pride. Yes, yeah. absolutely, and it's encapsulated for me in this little man. What an absolute treasure to have this story and um, these artifacts in your in your life. 
I'm blessed. I'm really, I've always been interested in family history and it was my mother that said, look, Karen, you hang on to these. And I said, fine, okay, yes, I will. And maybe it's my turn to create this story. Why not? You're doing a very good job right now, so I think you could come up with something from it. Well, I would love to just follow this. You know, the fact that there's the newspaper article there, I would have to be able to somehow trace that back to even what newspaper it went in. Mm. So you don't have any of that information, you've just got the clipping. I've just got the clipping. Mm. Interesting. I know that they're slowly archiving digitally all the old newspapers and you can start keyword searching them, so maybe in the next few years you'll be able to to try and find that information. Well, I'll pick up his exciting adventure and I'll create my own (laughs) in putting his down, you know, in, in the written form. I can even see this as a children's book, to be honest. Wow, yes, I can see that in the energy that he's bringing to it, that, mm-hmm. you know, you can do anything and you know, being smuggled on board. It's just, wow. It is a, it's a really adventurous story. He must have been very excited. I mean, just the face in this photo with the chaplain, he's, he's just brimming with excitement, isn't he? he? He really, really is. And how does one get a thought of, oh, I think I might smuggle on board a ship and go off to war? How do you get the uniform? <laughs> You know, uh, I'm going to go out there and say maybe his mother made it. (laughs) Who knows? His mother sounds like a wild card too. Yes. (laughs) Well, how long can a boy go missing without being noticed? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, and as I said, grandfather signed up a couple of years, his father signed up a couple of years later. So everybody was in the know. It's just, I just continue to see excitement and such strength actually there's a lot of strength in those photographs oh there is absolutely that's coming out of him it's you know to go on board a ship I have no idea if he had a concept that he was going off to war Mm. but to be smuggled on board the ship with all these men he, he must have just so had that spirit of being able to communicate and just link in with the boys mm-hmm. and have fun with them you know, yeah, an adventure. I just come back it's to that a, word adventure. It was a grand adventure. That's exactly yeah, what it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you're singing in the symphonic chorus uh, come at Remembrance Day. Yes, so yes. You, Sunday the 11th of November. So he'll obviously be on your mind when you're performing that. Look, he will. He certainly has been brought to life. I have the joy of having this as a very large photograph hanging mm. up in my home um, and having discovered that his father was also serving in the war. Yes, it does add a different colour to what we're doing. Yes. It really does. And it makes it extra special. It does make it extra special. Wonderful. Would you like to leave us with anything about the, the chorus or family stories at all? What I really saw here in the photographs and then having the energy of my mother creating her picture around it, as a family we never... We never really discussed the war as such. Mm-hmm. However, we always knew we had that connection through grandfather. Yep. And there was always a pride within my mother, even though she didn't meet him, the fact that her father had played a role in supporting the morale and the community that was in Egypt. Because um, they didn't head off to Egypt initially. You know, they were heading off to England, mm. and they ended up in Egypt. To have that that belief you know that was a my mother was very strong in having a belief in oneself yeah and you know her father had it my mother had it 
And, you know, everybody that is singing in the choir on um, Remembrance Day, you know, we all believe in what we're doing. You know, we love coming together singing and we love providing that that concert performance and it's going to be just an amazing experience. It's it's more than a concert, yep. what's being created. It's it's a, actually yes, we are creating an experience and so many people are coming together. People are just appearing and creating <laughs> this it's just growing and growing and growing and it's just going to be an unbelievable experience there you guys if you're not sold on it you should be and you should go get tickets and make sure you go to the concert thank you so much for coming in and chatting oh, to me look, thank you for giving me the chance you've got me all enthused to go and, and finish your story now. oh I want to hear the rest of it so once you find it <laughs> let me know <laughs> I, I promise that's my deal to you <laughs> thank you very much thanks Annie All right, folks, our second guest for this episode today is Anne Zubrick, and we're going to talk about her grandfather, Mr. William McKenzie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, okay, so William McKenzie is your grandfather. He was a Salvation Army officer and a military chaplain. That's correct. Yes, he was. And at the time that World War I broke out, Mm -hmm. he and my grandmother were actually in England, Right. Um, but as soon as he came back, he enlisted as mm-hmm. a chaplain, and uh, he actually sailed out of Albany with the second convoy that left from that port. Yeah. And he was primarily at that time associated with a brigade from Victoria because mm-hmm. my grandparents lived in Camberwell, one of the Melbourne suburbs at that time. So he started uh, in North Africa with that brigade. He was a very big man physically, mm-hmm. and uh, he was a Scot. <laughs> and so in the time that troops were in North Africa, the records show that one of the things that he did when the troops were out uh, actually training in the desert, and a number of them were young men who were not actually physically all that fit, mm. that he would go out with them. And he would actually carry their swags uh, so that they could continue training. And he did all the training with them. And that was a way of building relationships with the young men. The other story that's told about that time Mm -hmm. is that uh, many of the men used to go to the brothels in Cairo. And my grandfather would go to the brothels and he would pull the men out of there. (laughs) So he was not a popular person with the brothel owners in the city of Cairo. But he's also credited with saving a significant number of men from venereal disease during that time. So he was a man with a great heart Mm -hmm. and also a great capacity for reading situations and saying, what can I do here? It does, from reading a little bit about him, seems that he was very popular with the men and that he was very active. Yes. It's not often that you see a chaplain actually go out and train with the men. He was quite different, I think. And because he hadn't... I mean, he had grown up in Bundaberg. Mm -hmm. My great-grandparents migrated from Scotland to Bundaberg. They farmed there. So he was a lad who'd grown up very, very differently, I Mm. think, perhaps from... Uh, those who were Catholic or Anglican chaplains who may have had uh, very different sorts of upbringing. Very cloistered upbringings. (laughs) Yes, I I think that's so. 
And so the, the chaplains were not allowed to leave the boats when the troops went to Gallipoli. I believe it was about three days before they were actually ferried uh, on shore. Mm. So a lot of my father, grandfather's work in Gallipoli was actually burying men. Yeah. And he was were really well known and renowned for several things. One is that he just closely stayed in touch with both the men in the trenches and also the Australian army generals, Mm. commanders who were there, because he recognised that they weren't necessarily the ones who were making decisions that they would have made, Mm. and they also um, needed, needed support. But he'd fix coffee for the men in the evening and uh, prepare them as well as one ever might for whatever was going to face them during the next day. He dug the trenches deeper. He had a spade. (laughs) And uh, so he knew that if the trenches were deeper, then the chances of a helmet being seen over the top were less likely. And then during the night, he would also recut the stairs going down from the Gallipoli Heights to the beaches so that um, the men could be evacuated on stretches more easily uh, out to to the boats. So the book that was written about him by um, Daniel Renault, the Australian historian, Mm. and published in 1914, I think captures him well um, because they talk about him as the man the Anzacs revered and uh, so he was in Gallipoli right the way through to the evacuation and then went on to the western front and was in uh, Ypres and the Somme and Pontiers and and that scene Uh, again working as a very practical (laughs) Christian chaplain Mm -hmm. Um, often seeking food in French villages. He wrote thousands of letters um, to families back in Australia to tell them what had happened to their loved ones. He would go out after the battles to collect tags from the battlefield, make sure that people were identified when their lives had been lost. Mm -hmm. And when he came back to Australia, uh, at the end of the war, he was he was forty kilos lighter. Oof, that's significant. <laughs> <laughs> and he suffered a few bouts of dysentery mm-hmm. um, during the uh, the time of the war. He couldn't cross the street in uh, Australia without family members coming in and um, shaking his hand and uh, thanking him for. What he, what he had done. Mm. And when the Anzac Day marches started, my mother reported, because she used to be in Melbourne during the Anzac marches, that people would come up often with photos and say, do you know what happened to my brother, uncle, son, mm. whomever? And my grandfather had most remarkable memory. So if he saw the face and he knew where which battalion somebody was with, mm. if he had any information, then he would be able to share that. Mm. He sounds like an amazing man. Uh, I know reading up, apparently some people knew him as Fighting Mac. He then... was, yes. He had a reputation <laughs> as um, a young man 
when he was in Bundaberg, he was quite a boxer. Mm. So I think you didn't take him uh, lightly physically. <laughs> and one of the stories that came out of the battle at Logan Pine was he actually went over the top mm. with his shovel. And the <laughs> men nice. actually protected him. Wow. And um, surrounded him and said, no, go back. Your, your role is not here but he was recommended for a Victoria Cross on mm. not less than four occasions. Uh, he was given the Military Cross um, <laughs> and then later on an OBE. So he was um, very widely recognised. He, In the Western Front, he became really quite a close friend of... Oh, who, who's the person who we've been honouring this year with the Western Front? Monash. Uh, Monash, yes. His name just escaped me for a moment. But he, he befriended General Monash, mm-hmm. and as he did with the uh, commanders at Gallipoli. And um, he was one of the people who gave an oration at Monash's funeral, which is quite extraordinary, because you don't think about a Jew and a Salvation Army officer <laughs> being in that same kind of location. Mm. 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 So, I mean, to put it lightly, he wasn't just a chaplain looking after their spiritual health. He's probably one of the original mental health warriors. I don't think he would have seen himself that way, but I, I, I think he, he was a person who probably would have described himself as a man of spirit, mm-hmm. and uh, what he would do is imbue that sense of spirit, I think particularly in some of the very young soldiers mm-hmm. who were there. And... Um, you know, he. I think he was because he was in his forties when he was in World War One. Yeah. He would have been more like a father figure to them, I think. Yeah. But he was. He was very companionable, a very easy conversationalist. And the other things the men liked about him when um, when he did chapel services, he allowed them to sit. Oh, lovely. Whereas the <laughs> other chaplains made them stand mm-hmm. through the services. And the other thing that he was very good at, he had a very powerful singing voice. Mm. And so any time the men were marching, um, both in, in North Africa before the arrival at Gallipoli and then often in the relocation in Europe, he, um, he would get them to sing. And uh, he had, I, I don't know the song, mm-hmm. um, but he was quite famed for... Uh, a song which is called the Sunshine Song. And, you know, maybe it'll be there in the records. Um, Daniel Renault, my grandfather's biographer, wasn't able to find a record of it. Mm. Um, so I don't think anybody quite knows the words or the tune. <laughs> but it certainly was one that was known by the men. And I think it was kind of a cheering thing to do, to march singing rather than when it was safe to do so, of course, course, (laughs) than just march in silence. And it wasn't the only song he he wrote. Apparently there's there's quite a few that he penned. That's correct, yes, yeah. He was a a prolific writer. Unfortunately, a lot of his letters, as happens during war, uh, never arrived. Um, But he wrote to my grandmother and the family of five children in Melbourne very, very regularly. And I think that was good for his own mental health. I I said to Daniel Renault that I think that one of the things I've often reflected on 
is how did he stay so strong? Mm. And and I I think it was because he kind of was able to imagine what was happening with the children's lives at home. Mm. And um, so he would write very much connected to that context and um, always, of course, enjoyed whatever uh, letters came from them that reached him both um, at Gallipoli and on the Western Front. Yeah, they would have been real lifeline letters. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So when he came back to Australia, he you mentioned that you know every Anzac Day he was greeted with a lot of yes, uh, a lot of respect from people. Uh, I read that there was a, actually a, a huge crowd when he returned that greeted him. There was, yeah. And uh, he was still quite well known afterwards. And he ended up what going to China for a period. Of time? He did. Yes, my grandparents went to China in the mid-1920s, when my mother had just finished um, high school in Melbourne. And um, he was quite remarkable there because he was very trusted by all the people in the embassies Mm. in China. So he would go to Tiananmen Square every morning to actually see who had been beheaded the day before and to report back to the embassies on what had happened with the beheadings. He was trusted both by Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek and often acted as a kind of go-between. So he was was quite an extraordinary man. Mm. Yeah, that's that's one heck of a a resume that he just left listed off there. Wow. Well, I think it was a resume of of, of someone whose whose motto would have be would be do whatever needs to be done to actually assist rather than impede the situation. Oh, that's a great motto. Mm. And then when he came back to Australia, he was promoted to the command of the Southern Territory. That's correct. Yeah. So he he was the sort of leader of the. Salvation Army over the whole of the sort of Australia, New Zealand um, sort of part of the world. Uh-huh. I don't know if that actually also included South Africa. It may have. But uh, so they had um, the general in the UK and mm. so on. But he was the territorial commander of the Salvation Army. Um, and uh, he did a lot of interesting things during, <laughs> during uh, that period. Um, often having to uh, officiate at many, many uh, ceremonies, one of which was opening buildings. And it's fascinating. We have a number of keys at home (laughs) of buildings that he opened in Bendigo and Ballarat, which are solid gold. Wow. So they weren't actually the key that opened the door, but they were given to him as a as a commemoration of those events. That's one heck of a wall display. Well, yeah, it is. But, you know, you think, you know, this was quite, quite remarkable. But uh, here my grandparents lived incredibly simply. Mm. And after he returned from the Western Front, my grandmother had a, a shelf in her kitchen which had lots and lots of uh, small metal boxes. Mm-hmm. So... Each week with my grandfather's salary, there was a, a tenth that went into the tithing, which they, they gave to the Salvation Army at the service on Sunday. But there was always a box there that was for anybody who came to the door. 
and there were lots of veterans who would come to the door who needed a meal or who needed new shoes or whatever and uh, so their home was always open and welcoming to return veterans whatever their plight Mm. what an amazing amazing man Mm. wow do you have many memories of him at all Look, he was a man that I only met through my mother's stories. Fair enough. (laughs) Because uh, he died in 1948. Mm -hmm. I was born in 1945. And my parents were at that time living in Africa. Right. um, (laughs) In what was then northern Rhodesia, now Zambia. Mm -hmm. So my mother was not present when my, my grandfather died. And I never knew him personally. But the accounts of his his funeral were just extraordinary. He he died at home, and many, many, many uh, returned men followed his his coffin to Rookwood Cemetery. And his uh, his original gravestone is not there Mm. now. It's a different gravestone. But the original gravestone was engraved with the words, How the Men Loved Him. I think that's a perfect, perfect engraving yeah. on that because a man like that, he surely would have been admired mm. by thousands. Indeed. Mm. So while you're seen at the chorus on Remembrance Day, he's probably going to be in the forefront of your mind. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Judging by what you've you've heard about stories, how do you think that he'd feel knowing that you're seeing this concert? Oh, he'd be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be thrilled. He'd be thrilled that the singing tradition has carried uh, through the family. My mother was also a singer, Mm. but also being part of the remembrance. Fabulous. Is there any way that you'd like to end this recording? I think that sort of says it all. I think that was a great ending, actually. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast was edited, published and produced by the RSLWA. Head to www.rslwa.org.au for other content. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.